Good morning. There is a great deal uh, that I can't promise you about the life of discipleship and ministry that lies before you. I can't promise you recognition or acclaim or smooth sailing or a big church or a small church for that matter, supportive elders, the resources, financial or otherwise, to get on with the job, freedom from temptation, good health, a family that will always understand the choices that you make. I can't promise you any of those things. But I can promise you one thing, conflict. At some point or other, there will be conflict. There will be times when you need to forgive what others have done to you, and there will be times when you will need to be forgiven. You might be in one of those places right now, and the other person concerned might be sitting in this very room with us. But if not now, it will come. I've been there, and I expect I'll be there again. I've wronged others. I've sinned against them. And others have wronged me and sinned against me. So we all need to hear the words of Jesus that come to us this morning from Matthew's Gospel. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you might take from us all the distractions of this day and the days before the days to come and enable us to hear your word. And we pray that you might work in us so that we believe it and even more that we might live it to the glory of your Son. Amen. Will you turn with me to uh, Matthew 18? And let's take up the record from verse 15, where Jesus is still speaking to his disciples. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take with you one or two others, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, each word may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you like a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you on earth agree concerning the whole course of action about which you ask, it will be given to them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will you, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, one servant who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he did not have the capacity to repay, the master ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all he had and the debt repaid. 
Then the servant fell to the ground and did obeisance to him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay everything. The master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. That servant then went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denaria, seized him, began to choke him, saying, Repay what you owe. And the fellow servant fell down and begged him, Have mercy on me, and I will repay you. But he was not willing, and he took him and threw him in prison until he repaid what he owed. Then seeing what had happened, his fellow servants were greatly distressed and came and reported everything that had happened to their master. Then his master called him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Ought you not to have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And seething with anger, his master handed him over to the jailers until he paid back everything he owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you. If any of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. I wonder whether you find it intriguing that this passage should come straight after the passage we looked at last time about the pursuit of greatness and the danger of causing even just one of Christ's little ones to stumble. Why is this the next thing Jesus wants to say to his disciples after it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? Well, I'm convinced it's because whether it's the pursuit of greatness and the stumbling of little ones or the issue of forgiveness and the brother or sister who has sinned against you, the underlying dynamic is the same. The question about who is the greatest forgets that there's no status in the kingdom of heaven. I am like the little child Jesus placed in the midst of his disciples. The refusal to forgive debts forgets that I too stand in need of forgiveness and have a great debt. In fact, I am the recipient of extraordinary mercy. Just as it's all too easy to be seduced by greatness, to somehow recast it as a spiritual and godly ambition, it's all too easy to develop an unforgiving heart, perhaps justifying it on the basis of some real wrong done to me. And in both cases, it is one of these little ones, or my brother or my sister, who suffers, who is harmed by my scandalous behaviour or my hard-heartedness. You see, in both cases, a wrong assessment of ourselves leads to the mistreatment of others. The passage I've uh, just read is bound together around the issue of conflict and forgiveness. It begins and it ends with reference to your brother. Jesus is not talking about conflict in the world. He'll deal with that in other places. But conflict among his followers, members of the one church, servants of the one master, if there is one thing you mustn't forget in that context, it's this, that the person you're dealing with is your brother or your sister. And so the goal is not restitution 
revenge or retribution, it's always restoration, reconciliation and life together. Now, pause for a moment and recognise how diametrically opposed that is to the attitude of our world and particularly at this moment. It's been appalling to watch how vengeful we've become so quickly. The level of self-righteousness and moral outrage in our culture is little short of terrifying and more so because the outrage is levelled at thoughts and ideas, not just words and actions. If you hold an opinion with which I disagree, I can claim to be offended. I can speak about how many other people are deeply wounded by what you're thinking, especially if you've expressed it somewhere. Disassociate from you. Call on others to disassociate themselves from you. Get you banned from social media platforms or blacklisted in your profession. Think of what was done to J.K. Rowling, among others. You will not be forgiven if you disagree with what the activists think. Against that backdrop, friends, it's, it's, it's all the more important that we understand what Jesus is on about here. Well, the passage falls into three parts, all to do, as I've said, with your brother. When he sins against you, when he keeps on sinning against you, when you've lost perspective on his sin. So firstly, when he sins against you. What Jesus provides in these verses is not a manual of church discipline. It's not a universal process where each stage needs to be ticked off each time you are in conflict. Some people have tried to use these verses like that and have become unstuck because they haven't recognised the principles that are driving Jesus' approach. The fundamental principle is the purpose or aim of all of this. We noticed it is all about your brother. Yes, right at the beginning, Jesus mentions, if your brother sins against you. But from that point on, it's, it's all about your brother, not about you. The aim of the process is not to deal with your hurt or to vindicate your cause or to avenge the wrong that's done to you. It's not about making him or her pay, humiliating them in return for what they've done to you, making sure everyone knows they were in the wrong and you were in the right. The aim is quite simply to, you see it there in verse 15, to gain your brother. It's about winning them back, not paying them back. It's about restoration, not retribution. So the reason why the first step is to talk to him or her rather than to talk to everybody else and wouldn't so many conflicts today and all through history have been solved more easily if this first principle had been applied? The reason why this is the first step is because you want your brother and sister or sister back. You don't want to make it harder for this conflict to be resolved by publishing your grievance. You don't want to subtly or not so subtly tear them down by making sure other people know what they've done. No, if the goal is to win them, this is where you'll start. Not passive-aggressively sulking in a corner, 
not shouting your complaint from the rooftops, but taking it up with them, privately, respectfully, patiently, graciously, one-on-one, -on -one, just to them. And as Jesus said, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And isn't that worth it? Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. And yet, because the goal is to win your brother or sister, that should not be the end of it. Don't give up on them. Go back to them again, but this time with two or three others who can confirm what is said by both sides. You see, misunderstanding or misquoting what has been said can make a problem worse. Faithful, discreet, wise observers can help make sure that both sides understand what each other is saying. Two or three witnesses make it more likely I got him or her wrong or I was not clear or not kind or not fair. And though Jesus doesn't say it again, it's clear the goal is still the same. If he listens to them, you have gained your brother. And isn't that worth it? But sometimes this is not enough either. So Jesus says, then tell it to the church. Now, sometimes this passage is misused as a, a call to church discipline. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say the church should do anything. This is not a call for the church to pass judgment or inflict a punishment. This is not the same situation as that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where there was an issue of serious and very public moral failure. We're still dealing with if your brother sins against you. And the goal is still to win your brother. Telling the church is so that he or she might understand what they have done. Repent, be restored to fellowship with you. And if going to them privately and taking trusted wise brothers or sisters with you and telling the church make no difference, if he or she won't listen and won't be reconciled, then they should become to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. I think that uh, thanks to church history, we jump too quickly to the idea of excommunication, the ban, casting the person out of the church. But again, we're not talking about scandalous, immoral behaviour or public opposition to the gospel, as in other places in the New Testament. This is about when your brother or sister sins against you. And the attitude to be adopted here is personal too. Let them be to you like a Gentile and tax collector. Treat them like the rest of the unbelieving world, as someone who needs converting, once again with the goal of winning your brother back, perhaps for the first time as genuinely a brother or sister. We shouldn't rush into uh, using these verses as a strict template for church discipline. They are instead a way of keeping the goal of winning back our brother or sister in mind. In the end, the decision about what is bound or loosed, what remains broken or what is restored is God's decision. It takes place prior in the counsel of God. 
And so we pray with special confidence, as Jesus encourages us here, that in matters like this, when two or three people gather and pray and agree on a way forward, that he is there guiding that decision. So that's when your brother sins against you. What about when he keeps sinning against you? The same concern for the brother or sister who has sinned against me comes to the fore when Peter asks, it had to be Peter again, didn't it? And well, Peter asks, how often do I have to forgive him? I'm sure Peter thought that he was being exceedingly generous when he suggested seven times. I mean, he might not have known anything at all about baseball, but, you know, three strikes and you're out seems reasonable to me. By the seventh time, there's every likelihood that our commitment to forgiveness is being abused. That it's an ingrained pattern of behaviour that will never change. Why would you go that far? That's a really generous concession, isn't it? But Jesus blew Peter's suggestion right out of the water. No, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Or seventy-seven times. Either way, the point Jesus is making is simply stop counting. Stop counting. Grace and forgiveness are not commodities that you measure out this much and no more. You've misunderstood forgiveness if you operate that way. Forgiveness is the steady, consistent character of the Christian life. Now, you've seen the bumper sticker, I'm sure. Your Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. The problem with that bumper sticker is it doesn't say enough. Christians are not just forgiven, they're forgiving Christians are forgiving people. Forgiveness is not a notification that your, not just a notification that your guilt is taken away and your debt is paid. Forgiveness is a life-shaping, redirecting power in the life of the Christian. Love does that too. Paul wrote, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, that doesn't mean being naive or a doormat or a victim unable to escape a pattern of abuse. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring the consequences of a sin. In a, a recent, in my opinion, brilliant little article on true forgiveness in this journal called The Global Anglican, used to be called The Churchman, Peter Jensen spoke about real forgiveness that nevertheless has to face the fact that the disruption caused by some sin might make the restoration of the previous relationship impossible. Sometimes the betrayal or the abuse is such that trust required for a marriage relationship, for instance, is no longer available. The abuser might be forgiven, but that does not mean returning to the arena of the abuse and they have no right to demand otherwise. Nevertheless, we do pray, don't we? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's something about how we have been treated by God that changes our perspective. Which takes us to the third section of this passage. When he sins against you, the goal is not to pay him back, but to win him back. When he keeps on sinning against you, don't become an accountant. Don't keep a record. Stop counting. 
Forgiveness is not like that. And when you've lost your perspective on his sin. The parable which Jesus told at this point is one of the most confronting in the Gospels, I think. The story itself is quite simple. It's the end of the financial year or something like that, and it's time to get the accounts in order to make sure the bills are paid, especially the tax bill, and make sure the debts are collected. This man, this master, this ruler, decides to do just that. One debt, though, stands out because it dwarfs everything else. The 10,000 talent debt is extraordinary. It's an astronomic debt. Those who know about these things suggest that in today's money it's more likely equivalent to billions of Australian dollars. How do you even rack up a debt like that? It beggars the mind how someone could have possibly accrued such a debt. And it's really impossible to conceive of one man and a servant at that would be able to repay it. It suggests incompetence on a monumental scale. It's really hard to get your head around such a big figure. So yes, it stands out. And the man who managed uh, this remarkable feat is brought in. And it's clear he has nothing and is simply unable to pay it. There's only one obvious answer, slavery. Sell everything, even the man himself and his family. It's obviously not going to repay a debt that big, but at least it'll bring something in. And what happened next is mind-blowing. It would have made the papers, I think, for sure, if it had happened in our time. When the servant threw himself down on the ground and groveled, when he swore on a stack of Bibles that he'd pay it back, the master released him and forgave the debt. Forgave the debt. Wiped it away. A big red line through billions of dollars of debt. How can you make any sense of that? The debt was huge staggeringly huge and the master decided to bear the loss himself and set the servant free well you know the rest of the story the servant left the room i suspect still reeling in unbelief all that debt the prospect of prison and slavery and worse all removed with a single stroke of the pen and instead of rushing out and telling the family Instead of heading down to the temple to give thanks, he sought out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a minuscule amount by comparison, demanded repayment and threw him into prison. The absurd disproportion of what he did compared to what was done for him is meant to shock you to the core. Forgiven so much an incalculable debt, and yet not prepared to forgive. A man who had lost all sense of proportion, all sense of perspective. And as the parable plays itself out, he's brought back in before his master. It's clear that at least in the eyes of his master, his unforgiving heart is more serious than the debt he had accrued in the first place. Do you see the point? Can you feel the sharp edge? 
the servant had not seen himself as one who was forgiven and who had needed to be forgiven. Instead, he saw himself as one who was owed. And this is what prevented him from forgiving his fellow servant, a servant of the same master. A wrong assessment of himself led to the mistreatment of his brother. Brothers and sisters, this morning, take a moment to feel the weight of the debt beyond calculation that each one of us owes. The cross is the best indication of just how monumental that debt was. Way beyond the capacity of any one of us to repay. It took the eternal God himself in the person of the Son to take on our nature so that he could die in our place to exhaust that penalty and to forgive that debt. If you know the reality of an extraordinary forgiveness like that, it cannot leave you as you were before. Being, being forgiven cannot leave you unaffected. In fact, as one commentator put it, to be forgiven and to remain unforgiving is in reality to reject forgiveness. It is that serious. And that is why Jesus warned his disciples, as we are warned this morning, what this royal master did is a window into what our heavenly father will do if we do not forgive our brother or sister from the heart. Forget you are a child and the foolishness of the scramble for greatness will undo you. Forget you are forgiven and you'll lose the proper perspective and the sense of proportion that would otherwise lead you to full, open-handed, uncalculated forgiveness. So how are you going with that? How are you going with that? I said at the beginning, conflict is real and conflict will come. I can promise you that. There will come times when someone, or perhaps a group of someones, will sin against you. And as sure as that will be, there will be times when you sin against others. The only real question is how you will respond. And what will be your goal at each point? Will it be about you seeking redress or about winning your brother or sister? Forgiven so much, will you withhold forgiveness for what is really in comparison, no matter how much it hurts, so little? When he sins against you, Win him back. When he keeps sitting against you, stop counting. And when you've lost perspective on his sin, look at the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, we are the recipients of a forgiveness, the dimensions of which we could never measure. 
we thank you for forgiving us. And we pray for that work of your spirit in our hearts that we might be forgiving towards others. Father, if at this moment there is someone I must seek to be reconciled to, will you give each one of us the courage to do just that? To reach out and seek to win our brother or sister and to love them and forgive them from the heart. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen.